Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, thank you, Dr. Aiken, for that very kind introduction. And uh, greetings to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the College at Southeastern. I bring you greetings not only as president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boys College, but from Southern Seminary and Boys College. Yesterday, uh, there was published an article uh, basically announcing the end or the, uh, the visible coming of the end of the experiment in moderate Baptist theological education. And it's because, well, we could come up with all kinds of things we should say here, shouldn't we? Theology has consequences. That's the first thing we need to say. Second thing we need to say is there are no young people coming. I look out and I see you. You make me happy. And I have the same experience on, uh, on our own campus and uh, across so many campuses where God is moving mightily and you are the visible evidence of that. Someone asked me the other day, said, how do you read the news as you do and not get depressed? I said, well, first of all, because Jesus Christ is Lord and secondly, because we got troops. And uh, you are the visible sign of God's promise. I have to say thank you and I have to say thank you to several people. I see Professor Ben Merkel over here. We uh, recently completed a multi-year project in the Grace and Truth Study Bible, and it could not have been done without him as the New Testament editor. Just an incredible Christian scholar, and uh, Ben, let me thank you personally. It's uh, very gratifying now to be able to see people using that Bible. And just evidence of the quality of the faculty of this institution, and uh, so I say thank you. But uh, to Danny Aiken and to Charlotte Aiken in particular, thank you. Thank you for having us here. Mary's so glad to be here with me. And uh, we, we're just, we've been looking forward to this. It was delayed by COVID. It was, uh, it was so many years ago now that I was in need of hiring a provost and a dean of the School of Theology. And uh, there was only one person I wanted for that job, and I really didn't know him. I really didn't know Danny Aiken. I just knew of him, but I, I, I wanted to hire him. And uh, so we, we, we moved in that direction. Danny Aiken said, I'm not leaving Southeastern Seminary, because I'd heard that before. Uh, I, I, and and you'll, you will say that and think that at some point, which is the prelude to you saying yes. Uh, that's how God's, God works. And uh, Danny and Charlotte came, and it was at a moment of, uh, of extreme need. I, uh, I, I went to Southern. Jimmy Draper, who was then uh, the newly elected president of, of what became Lifeway, he called me and he said, I got two things to tell you. And the first thing he told me, I'm not going to tell you. It was right, by the way. The second thing he said is, whatever friends you have, you're going to bring with you, or you're going to hire to come to be with you. And that was exactly right. And uh, no greater friend did I ever have the joy of working with than Danny Aiken. And uh, so Danny, I didn't really even know him all that well. But very quickly, it became clear that God was putting together two men and two worlds. 
And in God's providence, it's just a wonderful thing. There, there were certain things that I was just naturally made to deal with. There were other things I was not so naturally made to deal with. God made Danny Aiken to deal with those. <laughs> now, at the most facile level, the most superficial, that would be like someone raises a sports metaphor. I'd turn to Danny and say, what are they talking about? He always knew, and uh, actually, God gave me Mary for that as well. <laughs> Sweetheart, what are they talking about? Uh, but, but just in, even in dealing with people, I would, uh, we'd have a meeting, the two of us, with some kind of person that was causing a problem, and it was a problem we had to solve. And at the end of the meeting, there'd be two diagnoses. I would say something like, he's going to be a very difficult problem. Dr. Aiken would say, he's a big fat idiot. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> and so that's, there was a division of labor, there was a division of analysis, and that's just the way it was. I never had a truer friend. And I don't expect ever to have a truer friend in life and in ministry than Danny Aiken. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a couple of couples, and that Mary and I, with Charlotte and Danny, uh, had a relationship while we were together that was so close that our children think of Danny and Charlotte Aiken as aunt and uncle, and our teenage daughter burst into tears when she was told that Danny Aiken was committing high treason and uh, coming to be president of Southeastern Seminary. But as soon as Southeastern Seminary was looking for a president, I knew it would be Danny Aiken, and I told him that, because God made him to do this. And one of the things I would just encourage you getting started here is that you will need friends in ministry for life, or you won't make it. Uh, that, that's something that you, you, you don't have written as a verse in the Bible, but it's in the Bible. Just look at the pattern of Jesus sending out his disciples, not singularly, but together. Look at the practice of the Apostle Paul, as you see. If he's sending someone out alone, it's to go to be with someone else in ministry. You, you're going to need that. You, you need that friendship. And, and the second thing I want to say is that those friendships uh, become themselves a picture of the gospel for people. And uh, so enjoy that. And you, you just play God's, God's glory in it. And so it's a great joy for Mary and for me to be here at Southeastern and uh, with the Aikens and with you. So... It is my pleasure to deliver the 2021 page lectures, and I see the excitement on your faces. Uh, actually, I can tell you that, uh, that there were lectures I can look back on that really did change the way I think about something. Something was added to my thinking and to my ministry, to my theological perception that was just very helpful. I hope that's the case this morning. I've prayed and thinking of being with you that uh, my hope is something will be sparked that you'll find more interesting uh, even upon reflection. I want to open with the Word of God in a passage that no doubt you know, and it is from 1 Peter, and it's just the first two verses.
We read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. The theme of these lectures is rethinking Christian witness in a post-Christian age. And the division of labor, so to speak, between the two lectures is this. Today I want to speak about the predicament of post-Christianity or the predicament of living and ministering in a post-Christian age. And then on Thursday I want to speak about the power of Christian witness in a post-Christian age. This first lecture is going to be a bit of diagnosis in order to try to understand this predicament that we now face. I turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 to make a point that is just a little bit angular, actually, and to do so by intention. This passage, of course, has been known to Christians for 2,000 years and cherished. This is the inerrant and infallible Word of God describing the predicament of the church. A few years ago, William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas uh, wrote a book that had a lot of influence, especially in mainline Christianity, entitled Resident Aliens. And, and the point they were trying to make, and their audience was really mainline Christianity, the declining uh, liberal Protestant denominations, the, the argument they were trying to make in a sort of post-liberal but not conservative orthodox sense was that the church now finds itself in a predicament. It, we're, we're, we're in a real pickle now. This is, this is a predicament. By then, those denominations were in tremendous decline, and, uh, and the culture was clearly no longer taking its cues from the mainline Christian leaders who had once had enormous influence. And so feeling the, the loss of that influence and feeling social displacement, nobody really cared that much about what the pastor of the first this or the first that or the first the other or Christ Episcopal Church cared the way they used to. And, and so Hauerwas is kind of a self-invented sort of Anabaptist. And, and Will, Will, William Willman, who uh, became a United Methodist bishop after writing the book, they suggested, look, the church is in a predicament, and, and they turned to 1 Peter, they turned to these very verses, you understand the, the title, Resident Aliens, they're, they're drawing it right from here, right from Peter's description of the church to whom he is writing as elect exiles of the dispersion. And, and so what, what Willeman and Hauerwas thought to do in a book that's now, by the way, I went back to look at it, it's, it's just really strangely dated now when you look back. What they were trying to do is to say, look, the church is in a predicament, wake up, we're in a predicament. We have to rethink things. Well, my suggestion to you is the church is always in a predicament. I dare you to find any moment in the history of the church when it isn't in a predicament. In one sense, a part of the role of the church as a sign of contradiction is that we are a predicament everywhere in all places, at all times. That's just the way it works. The, the Christian church, as the body of Christ situated within fallen humanity, is, as Augustine pointed out, the, the city of God present for now in the city of man. But the city of man is the passing thing, and the city of God is the coming thing, the eternal thing. And uh, negotiating that relationship has, has always been difficult. Just think of primitive Christianity. Just think of the first Christians. Just think of Jerusalem. It was not a friendly territory. The hostility of the of 
organized Judaism of the temple authorities to Jesus was extended to his disciples such that even though the church in Jerusalem was the first church and, and exercised leadership, by the time you get well into the New Testament, it is now dependent upon Christians elsewhere, having been spread by the missionary expansion, to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a receiving church even by the time the New Testament age comes to a close. And then, of course, there was a hostility to the Roman Empire, and, and that framed so much of the early experience of the church. That was certainly a predicament. The Roman Empire was the one world fact with which everyone had to deal. Now, when I say everyone, that, that points out something. When, we, when we're speaking of this kind of predicament, we are considering the history of the church and the spread of Christianity and the missionary movement, both in the New Testament and beyond. We're looking at the particular trajectory of the culture of which we are inheritors, which is to say, there are other stories, but this is the story we know best. And this is, this is the main story in terms of the numbers of Christians through the ages of Christianity. But that, that predicament of the hostile Roman Empire, which was the great fact over against which you, you have to consider so much of Paul's ministry, it was then followed by, and I realize this is, this is history by jumping from place to place, the Constantinian Revolution. And, and so what had been illegal in a remarkably short amount of time in the actions and lifetime of Constantine becomes the state religion. Well, everything's now changed. But which is worse, being persecuted or being embraced by Rome? It's an open question. Now, now certainly in terms of much of the ministry and the institutional rise of Christianity and even the spread of Christianity, it, it, was, it was a good thing. It was, it was a net gain for the church to have Rome as a friend. But there were, there were problems from the beginning because Rome isn't just your friend. Rome is Rome. That was a predicament. But then came the predicament of the fall of the Roman Empire. It turns out, and this is a, in large respect the answer to the question, why did Augustine write the city of God? Why did he have to address these issues? It is because the fall of the Roman Empire became the one fact that seemed to threaten in, in the minds of, of Western Christians whether or not civilization could continue and what that would mean for the church. If Rome falls, how can there be any stable institution surviving civilization at all? But of course, we jump again there followed the predicament of medieval Christendom. And once again, the, the, the people who were the architects of that experiment didn't see it so much as a predicament as they saw it as the fulfillment of what they had been striving for. One of the marks of that medieval period was the union of throne and altar. And, and so in the idea of a Christian civilization and what would be known as Christendom, the, the throne, the king, and the altar, the, the church... Uh, you could just say king, emperor on one side, pope, bishops on the other side. The, they, there would be the synthesis, and uh, the union of throne and altar would mean a unitary civilization that would be genuinely Christian and the fulfillment even of eschatological expectations. But just as Rome was a predicament, the union of throne and altar was a predicament. Because it happened that, well, we actually know that many of the inhabitants of those thrones were uh, bestial creatures. We actually know that 
many of the inhabitants of the papal throne were bestial creatures. At times it's hard to know in the union of that throne and that altar who was corrupting whom. On the other hand, there was a gain. There, 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 there was gain. And, and looking in retrospect, we can see something that, that even the people alive there at the time probably didn't recognize, and that is there was a transformation of a culture in terms of its understanding of morality, its structures of understanding of humanity, its, its basic understanding and vision of life. Uh, they were transformed by Christianity. Even the understanding of time, this is something people don't recognize, but the, the understanding of time was Christianized in such a way that the, the, the day, the week, and the span of a lifetime began to be reinterpreted in a Christian light. And all you have to do to know this is just to walk in cemeteries and look at what was written on the stones. The interpretation of time was Christianized. That lasted a very long time. Indeed, just as a generalization, you could say there's almost a thousand years of that Christendom. But then everything began to come loose. We can now talk about uh, dividing the modern age into three different periods, early modernity, high modernity, and late modernity. By the way, you're in late modernity. You woke up this morning in the late modern age. If your iPhone did not tell you that, I did. The early modern age was marked by the necessary rethinking of some of the, of the issues that had made medieval Christianity and Christendom unified, such as the union of throne and altar. And one of the most disruptive of those developments was the Reformation of the 16th century. The Reformation of the 16th century caused a complete rethinking of how kings and emperors are to be related to churches, and in particular to the papacy, because the idea was, and, and this was for a thousand years, you can just assume, for a, for a thousand years, kings and emperors, queens insofar as they ruled, only had the legitimacy of throne by the sanction of the church. And that meant basically by the pope. Led to all kinds of issues, but that was the one thing everyone knew about the king. That, so if you're, if you're thinking about King Henry VIII and his six wives and why that matters, it, it had everything to do in one sense with the legitimacy of a throne. And, and when Henry broke from Rome... It made Henry, who had been the defender of the faith by papal decree, an enemy of the church worthy of death. Elizabeth, his daughter, who would rule after Edward VI and Mary, her life would be constantly threatened by Catholic forces her entire life. The union of throne and altar broke apart only reluctantly. But in that early modern age, the, the changes, these tectonic plates on Earth's surface changing were changing to such a degree that everything was rethought. Yeah, the Enlightenment, an attempted cosmos and universe of, of entire reason, reason alone. You, of course, had the Renaissance with its supposed assumption of humanism but as we now know, it was, a, it was a disguised celebration of a distancing from the Christian claim about humanity and the cosmos, and it was largely smuggled through art, celebrated by the culture, and even eventually celebrated by the church. 
The Enlightenment philosophers wanted an empire of reason. Let's think of Immanuel Kant's book, Religion Within the Bounds of Reason Alone. That's, that's the religion that can survive in the Enlightenment age. It has to be entirely based upon reason. Good luck with that, by the way. Try that. Whatever you have, it isn't really religion, and it certainly isn't Christianity. But in this modern age, in the shift from the early modern age to the modern age, you have this redefinition of reason as emancipatory reason. And you're saying, you know, it's, uh, this is supposed to be interesting. Well, just ponder emancipatory reason and understand what was set loose in our culture at that time. Emancipatory reason means the use of reason to free people from bondage. Bondage to the idea of oppressive regimes. Bondage to outmoded ideas that need to be left in the past. Bondage to the church. Bondage to theism. This idea of emancipatory reason is, is what gets, by the way, as you just fast forward history, this idea of emancipatory reason is exactly what's going on on, on I started to say so many, it's, it's now most, if not virtually all, elite academic campuses in the United States. It's the idea of this emancipatory reason turned into social activism as it is combined with critical theory. As you follow along, you end up with the modern age, you're giving birth to the high modern age, modern ideas of liberty, the age of revolution, revolution in the United States, France, and even in Britain, they call it a revolution, it wasn't much of a revolution, but they get in on the game. And the American revolution is incredibly unlike the French revolution, but the point was it was an age of revolution in which revolutionary ideas became the front line of intellectual development. They reset the entire intellectual table. Monarchy was on retreat. And by the way, it was on retreat slowly and then fast. That's the way it works. Uh, by the time you come to the beginning of the 20th century, most of the people who live in European civilizations live under a monarch. But just at the end of World War II, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire fell, dominating most of Central Europe. The Russian Empire had fallen. The German Empire fell. Everything seems to be changed. That's within the century just before us. Industrialization, a second age of revolution led by Marx and transformed into Marxism and anarchism and other radical political ideologies. Modernity in full in the 1920s and the 1960s. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like everything from antibiotics to modern politics. It looks like 1950s automobiles with giant tail fins and lots of steel. It was the announcement of the modern age coming. In our, in our garage at the president's home at Southern, it, there are these most hideous green metal cabinets, and they are hideous. It's that color green that someone thought was beautiful in the 1950s. I don't think it ever existed in nature, but it did exist at General Electric. As a symbol of modernity, right in Louisville, Kentucky, was and is the largest appliance plant in the entire world. It's called Appliance Park. It covers, it covers square miles of territory. And during the high modern age, what came, what came out of that 
were uh, stoves, ranges, refrigerators, all kinds of appliances, eventually washing machines and dryers, and uh, even after that, dishwashers, and all these machines came off the line. General Electric, did, how did those... How did those cabinets end up in the garage of the President's Home at Southern Seminaries? Because they weren't originally in the garage, they were in the kitchen. And it is because General Electric made a deal with Southern Seminary in the 1950s saying, we need a picture spread of the kitchen of the future. We'd like to put the kitchen of the future in the President's Home at Southern Seminary. And so for years, the President's Home at Southern Seminary had the kitchen of the future. Well, the kitchen of the future is now in the garage. And it has been there since long before Mary and I moved into that house. And that hideous green greets us every time we go into the garage. What was the kitchen of the future about? The kitchen of the future was enamel and steel and paint. The kitchen of the future looked like the car of the past. What's going on with, I, I love automobiles. I love the history of automobiles. I love airplanes. I love the history of airplanes. And you just look at, you look at the design. Why did I mention them together? It's because in the 1950s, high modernism had reached the point, just in terms of what you can see, that cars began to be made to look like airplanes. Now, I realize you're a little young to have seen this, but you need to go look it up. Look up a 1959 Cadillac Eldorado. It's a piece of art. It's a piece of metal. It's about as long as a football field. <laughs> On the back of that very sleek, very big automobile were two fins. They were so high that it created a safety problem. People were backing into things because they couldn't see over the tail fins of this car. On the back of the tail fins were two big taillights, and they came out in cones. What was it supposed to look like? It was supposed to look like a jet. Sure, that's exactly what it felt like. 454 cubic inches of internal combustion. By the way, don't even ask about the gas mileage. But in that high modern age, all of this was coming together in such a sense that people felt like humanity's arrived. There was a predicament for the church in the midst of this because going all the way back to the, the early modern age, the questions about the veracity of Scripture, the questions about the authority of the church, the questions about the truthfulness of Christian doctrines, those began to be considered by the elites, the philosophers in the cafes, the coffee shops, uh, places like Paris, Edinburgh, Edinburgh, where the, the, those kinds of things were considered. By the time you get to the 1959 Cadillac Eldorado age, this is becoming far more mainstreamed in the culture. It's, it's presenting a challenge to the church that's that's now unavoidable, such that in the 1960s, Time Magazine will run a cover story, infamously so, just asking the question, is God dead? Now, there were people asking that question in the early modern age, but it takes an awful lot of cultural change to get to, is God dead, on the front of Time Magazine in the 1960s. That was a predicament for the church. The church is now being asked if God is dead or at least an awful lot of the institutional church in the United States is being asked that question. And then you had uh, this reign of ideology, the, the ideologies of Marx and Darwin and, and Freud and Nietzsche began, began to be far more mainstreamed in the society. Modernity in full came with so many of these ideas being so mainstream that people didn't even know their origin. 
And then, of course, in the 60s came a, a third age of revolution. And this was largely in the form of personal autonomy and liberation, again, emancipatory reason, but in this case, being freed from ideas of sexual propriety and sexual morality. Second wave feminism came along, the driving force to flatten differences between the sexes. And now, of course, as we will fast forward to our current moment, a transitory moment to be sure, in the LGBTQ plus movement, the plus being the sign of how transitory it is, we are now looking at the fact that what made perfect sense to second wave feminism, and that was the difference, unchanging difference between men and women, is now being obscured by those who deny even that. Of course, the intellectual currents included postmodernism in the 1990s, a term that had been used all the way back in the 1960s in France. Postmodernism insinuated that modernism was over. We now know that, of course, modernism wasn't over because even as postmodernism denied the, the meta narratives, the grand narratives of, of, of modernity, nonetheless, it was extremely modern. Those postmodernist professors didn't believe in absolute truth when it came to an English text or when it came to the Bible, but they did when it came to their contract. There, they were absolute modernists. The modern age continued. And now in late modernity, we are told that the great dynamic is the battle between the logic of capitalism and the logic of anti-capitalism, and the emancipatory argument is there very much, especially on the college campus. But now, of course, even at the point of shutting down all speech that is defined as harm. Okay, so all that to get to the question, why in the world do we use the term post-Christian? Well, let's talk about this. The term probably first emerged in British, I would say in this case English, and Irish literature. You have poets and writers, even in the beginning of the 20th century, looking to that century, not to mention our own, but especially at the midpoint of the 20th century, beginning to observe the world around them and recognize Something has changed. And, and, and what's crucial about the language of a post-Christian age or a situation of post-Christianity is that we look at history now increasingly in, in Western societies in a, in a timeline that has three parts, not two. In order to understand this, I want us to go to England and uh, perhaps even more acutely to Ireland. If you think of the most religious nation on earth, it would be hard to come up with a nation more religious than Ireland. Uh, Ireland was so religious that religion has dominated its life and its culture in, uh, in the Republic of Ireland, as it is known, and, and also in Northern Ireland, and the dynamic between the Protestants and the Catholics, even though people would say, well, that's not really about theology, it really was about theology. Now, it became about more than theology, but it, it has never been less than about theology. And that was the dominating issue, so much so that the old joke in the 20th century in Ireland was that uh, someone sat down to next to someone else and said, are you Catholic or Protestant? And he said, I'm Jewish. And casually, the person said, well, but are you Catholic Jewish or Protestant Jewish? That was so much the dominating issue that no one could consider being anything really other than Christian, and, and, and even the Catholic and Protestant, you know, that becomes the identity that, it, 
that explains everything. And of course, they're in the Republic in the South, overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, so much so that the Catholics run just about everything. They, they, they run the orphanages, they run the hospitals, they, they, they largely run the government. The entire cultural and social life is dominated by the rhythms and by the sacramental life of the Roman Catholic Church. And we, we know there are big scandals coming. We know that, especially from the, the 1980s and exploding in the 1990s and beyond. But throughout most of the 20th century, you would not have known that. In the 1980s, the Irish people overwhelmingly supported pro-life legislation. In the 1980s, by, by referendum, overwhelmingly. And, and, and during the time, even in the 1990s, in the beginning of the 90s, over 90% of the Irish people in the Republic of Ireland went to church virtually every Sunday, over 90%. It has now dropped below 20%. It is fast dropping like a stone. It is expected to be less than 10% by about 2025. How does a society change that way? How, how, how does that happen? There are all kinds of reasons. And of course, the theory of secularization comes in where the, the original theory was that societies as they modernize will secularize because the, the logic of modernity makes God now unnecessary and the authority of the church uncomfortable and, and eventually what were theistic explanations are replaced by scientific explanations, rational explanations, less need for God. Well, you know, secularization theory had to be rethought and rethought again because as we now know, and again, Christians know that human beings made in the image of God are inherently religious, so there, it, there, there is no truly secular person, even though they may declare themselves to be. They're, they're like, are you Catholic Jewish or are you Protestant Jewish? If they're secular, there comes, there's some kind of secular. Even Jean-Paul Sartre said, we are Christian atheists. There's no such thing as a generic atheist. In the West, they're largely Christian or Jewish atheists. They're rejecting some God in general who still forms the background, which is so frustrating to atheists. They want to be an atheist in order to escape having to make any reference to the God of the Bible, but it's the God of the Bible they're rejecting, and in rejecting him, they have to keep talking about him. This is Richard Dawkins' predicament. He talks as much about God as most priests. All right. The big issue is that Time is now split into three, not two. In Ireland, for most of the experience of the, the Irish for the last, say, thousand years, history was split in two, before Christianity and Christianity. And there was a before Christianity. By the way, one of the differences in secularization and in the self-consciousness of people in our continent versus the English-speaking world in the old world, one of the differences is in the old world, they have a before Christianity that is actually on their mind, and it's continually rem reminded to them by, say, Stonehenge or just about anything. There's this pre-Christian past that's, uh, that's very dominant in, in, in such a way that they, they understand it. The, the, great, the great story of missionary Christianity and the Christianization of, uh, of the British Isles, it, it, that's a before and an after, the after being Christianity. And just as there were Christians who thought that Rome would exist forever and had no no real opportunity to think through what it would mean for Rome not to exist. In the same sense, there have been so many Christians in the West, and I, I speak specifically with reference to you, to the English-speaking world, so many who assumed that history was really split in two. In this sense, we know history split in two in the 
greatest sense by before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and after. And, but, but just thinking of the English-speaking world, there was a before, before Christianity, and now Christianity. Here's how the world's changed. Christianity has brought human dignity. Christianity has brought this, this entire beneficent set of moral laws, principles, and commandments. Christianity is so shaped the civilization that it doesn't know who it is without Christianity. The pagan past is back there and, of course, even acknowledged, for example, by those who founded the United States with references to classical civilization. It's not by accident that there's so many of the buildings in Washington, D.C. look Greek and Roman. But still, there's a before and an after. What has to be explained is what continuity there might be. But the new thing is here forever, and, and that is this, this Christian age is here forever. But here's what we know. It, it wasn't. And so now what you see in a place like Ireland is the understanding of history cut not in two but in three, pre-Christian, Christian for a very long time, and then profoundly and suddenly not Christian. Some of you will know the name of Leslie Newbigin. Uh, I don't share his theology in so many ways, but his perception of the post-Christian reality is profound, and it was made even more profound by the fact that he served so much of his life in India as a, an Anglican bishop. And uh, then coming back to Christendom, he noticed that it was decreasingly Christendom in any sense. And missiologically, because Newbigin was a missiologist, he said, he said, the big problem is that I believe, he went out on a limb to say, I believe that evangelizing a post-Christian culture is going to be of an unknown factor more difficult than evangelizing a pre-Christian culture. If for no other reason than human beings think in linear terms forward, by the way, that's also a Christian impulse. Past, present, and future. History is moving forward. It's moving something, towards something. It's a telos. And if you split history not just in two, pre-Christian and now Christian, but now three, pre-Christian and Christian and post-Christian, the future appears not to be Christian, and those who want to get with the future are not going to identify naturally with Christianity. Christianity is going to see, be seen as the thing that was left behind in this great act of emancipation. And being post-Christian will lead to Christianity becoming the embarrassment, even as it was the center of identity during that age of Christianity and Christendom, it now becomes the great embarrassment. We saw in the 19th century figures such as Matthew Arnold in England write poems such as Dover Beach. He said, the sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. Faith in recession, Christianity in recession. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson would come along 30 years later in 1897 and write that great famous poem, Recessional. And it was an astounding act of poetic arrogance because he was asked to write that poem for the celebration of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. The British Empire is supposed to be at its height. 
And he writes a poem for the occasion entitled Recessional. This is a close, not an opening. Well, we fast forward. Conrad Gribben is a very perceptive scholar, by the way, has written a new book. It was just published. I've been looking forward to it for a couple of years, knowing it was coming. It's entitled The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. And it is an incredibly important book. He cites this, the flip, for example, how do you explain a country that by referendum solidly supported pro-life legislation in the 80s, only to completely flip by referendum sometime later? Ireland became, at least so far as I know, the very first country by referendum to legalize same-sex marriage, and a country that, in which that would have been unimaginable just a matter of a, a few years before. And, and then, within short order, they had actually elected an openly homosexual leader of parliament. Church attendance, again, fell from 90% to 18%, still falling precipitously in one generation. In Ireland, which had been the engine for sending priests all over the world, Irish priests going all over the world, Irish parishes are closing. The famous Catholic seminary for the training of priests at Montooth is closed, and the Irish Catholic Church is having to import priests from Poland and Africa. Recessional. How does that affect us? Well, just consider what Conrad Gribben writes about the current situation in Ireland. If current trends in public opinion continue, he says, some of the traditional moral claims of Christianity will cease to be socially acceptable, and in the absence of robust free speech legislation, the public statement of them may no longer be permitted. In other words, what was once the central moral affirmation in Ireland, the affirmation necessary to teach in a school, to have a job, to stay out of jail, now will no longer be allowably spoken. Now, Thursday we're going to ask some questions about what we do in the midst of this. What, 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 how, how do we negotiate this? And let me just say, Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a safe question for us to ask. Because after all, uh, Christians must face this kind of question and answer it. What's it going to be like to minister in an age that is increasingly post-Christian? What's it going to be like when the average person around us, the average college student, and, and arguably if the average college student, uh, you know, especially involved in the kind of activism and the, the ideological currents going on on campuses today, they too, if they think historically at all, are thinking in terms not of two-part history, pre-Christian and Christian, but three-part pre-Christian, Christian, and now liberation on the other side of Christianity. A part of what we're going to consider when we're together next is the fact that what's missing is, is even a memory of Christianity amongst so, so many. In the English-speaking world, the other side of the Atlantic, you can no longer make allusions to the Scripture, and anyone have a clue that's what you're doing. Fascinating analysis being done, for instance, of the BBC. The BBC now has to explain everything. If it's going to make any religious expression whatsoever, if it's going to use the name David, and people are supposed to know that that means something in terms of, of Judeo-Christian heritage, it, it's going to have to be explained. 
As Charles Taylor talks about the social imaginary, meaning the totality of, of, of what's in the imagination, accessible at the time, so that you can, you can draw on this. The, the average British teenager wouldn't know what to do with J.R.R. Tolkien or with C.S. Lewis because it's as if he is reading an ancient text, which he is in one sense, but even just take the, the Lord of the Rings. It, it's, it's written about, well, you would think pre-Christian, but it's written within the context of Christianity. It's actually incomprehensible in a post-Christian age. It's going to be fun to think some of these things through, but let me just leave you with this. The logic, the logic of the age is that people aspire to be a part of the coming thing and not of the going thing. Now, that worked for Christianity for a very long time in Western societies. It worked for us because Christianity appeared to be the coming thing, the dominant thing, the unchanging thing. People joined our churches because they, they needed to in order to be seen as upright members of the community. People gave tacit recognition to Christianity and assumed that Christianity would have a central informative role in laws and in custom and in morality because, after all, it was the coming thing and now it's here. Just recognize that so many of the people in the thought class around us are absolutely certain that Christianity is and has been for a long time not the coming thing, but the going thing. And the good thing that it's gone to, given their ideas of secular liberation. And so you say, we're in a predicament. We're in a pickle. Well, just think about this. God in his sovereignty has determined that this will be your challenge. This is my birthday. I turned 62. This is going to be your problem. It's uh, our challenge to help to encourage you to be ready for this challenge. And I think you will be up to it. Not so much because of who you are, but because Jesus Christ is Lord. We're going to consider some things when we're together on Thursday. Rod Dreher suggested that the, the way for us to think about this in a post-Christian age is to look for a new St. Benedict. I'm going to suggest that what we need are new St. Patrick's. Because the one thing Christians actually know how to do is to follow the logic of the missionary expansion of the gospel. We need a generation of St. Patrick's to minister in a post-Christian age, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are just so thankful that we are not left to think these things alone, nor to understand them by ourselves. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom through your church in the ages. Father, may we take what is right and prize it and seize it and not let it go. May we not yearn for the supports of the culture that are being taken from us as if we cannot survive without them. Father, you are Lord. You are sovereign. May we be found faithful. We pray so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. 
For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.